Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at RestoreAustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. Hey, good morning. My name is John. I am one of the pastors here at Restore and so excited to be here with you this morning. Thanks so much for taking time to join us. I just want to remind you what Zach said earlier that uh, we're going to do a Q&A at the end. So uh, during the, the message today or just as you evaluate the past week and just all that's going on in the world, if you have any questions about what I'm about to say or questions about what we're doing about at Restore, uh, feel free to drop those in the comment section now and we'll circle back at the end of our time uh, this morning and do our best to answer those questions. So we've been in this series called uh, What is Love? And our plans have been interrupted just like everyone else. And so we were wa- uh, walking through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, kind of looking at what the different characteristics of love are. And we decided that we really wanted to speak to this moment. So we decided to kind of change our course and our plans a little bit. So we're going to reorient this morning around a new idea. Like I said, your life has been interrupted Uh, We're kind of all living with this profound reality that nothing looks and nothing feels like it did just two weeks ago. Um, One of my favorite authors and philosophers and theologians, this guy named C.S. Lewis, had this quote that kind of shows us that interruptions show us who we really are. And the way we view interruptions really tell us and inform us about the kind of lens that we see life through. Uh, Lewis said this. He said, the great thing if one can is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. Let me read that again. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. What one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's imagination. So how has your life been interrupted? How has your life changed just in the the last few weeks? The hard truth that Lewis tells us here is that we can only live right now. We can only live in this moment because uh, to live in the past is to live with regret. Uh, To live in an unknown and uncertain future is to live in a perpetual state of anxiety. So we're being called to live in this moment, no no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging it is. And according to Lewis, this surreal moment that this, our entire world is in right now, this surreal moment is real life. This is our new normal, as Lewis describes. But we're all left kind of navigating life, asking a series of questions like, what will the future look like? Will things ever be the same again? Uh, will the stock market ever recover? Will I have my job next month? Will my kids ever be able to go back to school? I am asking that question every moment of every day. Dear Lord, will my kids ever be able to go back to school? And these are all questions that we have. They're all crippling us. They're all crippling our nation and our world with this kind of extreme anxiety that we all feel. And you're probably in one of two camps. Either you have extreme anxiety like we've been talking about or you have hope. 
And did you know that hope and anxiety are sibling emotions? Uh, Jürgen Moltmann is one of my favorite theologians, and he talked to this idea. He said that hope and anxiety are sibling emotions because at their core, it's all about anticipation. Listen to what he said. He said, what anxiety and hope actually have in common is a sense of what is possible. In anxiety, we anticipate possible danger, and in hope, we anticipate possible deliverance. So what are you anticipating? Are you anticipating danger or are you anticipating deliverance? Uh, maybe a more simple question is, do we have hope? Do we have faith? All those things right now, they do look really bad and they are frightening and scary. Or do we have fear and do we have anxiety? So like I said, we've been in this series called What is Love? in 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to look um, at, a, at a different passage of Scripture today, but I wanted to take us back to 1 Corinthians 13 because of something it says. It says this, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, and listen, it always hopes, always perseveres. It always hopes. So I think for us to love well in this moment is to have hope. And living from that hope, we have to be what I want to talk about, being a non-anxious presence in our world. Living from that hope, living as loving followers of Jesus, we are called to be a non-anxious presence instead of agents of anxiety. And to be a non-anxious presence isn't simply about the absence of anxiety or the absence of fear in your life. It's about the presence of something else. So let's find out what that is. We're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 6. Mark is the gospel account of the story of Jesus' life. We'll be in Mark 6 uh, verse 45. And this story is amazing because it comes literally moments after this incredible miracle where Jesus and his disciples fed 5,000 men plus women and children with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, if you've never read that story, I'd encourage you to go back and read that. But this is the context for what's about to happen next. So this miracle has happened, a true miracle. And it says in verse 45, immediately, so as soon as that happened, immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, or just before dawn, he came to them. Jesus, listen to this. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Now, I want to stop there really quickly. Because that it was a ghost for us today just may sound bizarre and thinking these guys are like obviously like crazy or, you know, whatever. But the backstory here is important for us to understand. For us today, we think of the sea and the, the Sea of Galilee that they're talking about here is not actually um, a, a body of like salt water. It's fresh water. It's more of like a really large lake. But for these people, uh, we, or for us, we think of the sea or we think of a lake as like a place of rest or a day off or a place we go on vacation like Lake Travis or to the Oasis or South Padre on a beach vacation with our family. But the ancient Jewish people, the ancient Hebrew people were not a seafaring people. They were Bedouins. For, so for them, the sea in the ancient Hebrew world was seen as a place of chaos. It was terrifying to them at a metaphorical level and also a theological level. This image of the sea and this place of the sea was a place of chaos 
and anarchy. Now they say it's a ghost. They're afraid. And this word ghost in the New Testament was uh, written in Greek. And the word ghost here is the word phantasma, where we get the word phantom. And the reason they said this is because scholars believe um, that this is based on a first century superstition that souls, the souls of those who drowned uh, in those waters haunted the waters at night, particularly those that were evil. So it's 4 a.m. in the morning. These guys are not at their best. They've been fighting the sea, this storm, all night long. They're in this place within their culture that is known as a place of evil, and it's terrifying. For us today, we're in day seven of a quarantine. We're tired. We're afraid. We're terrified. Uh, We're delirious. Maybe we're seeing ghosts in our house. Who knows? We can kind of understand what's going on with them. And then it says this, and it says, and they cried out for they saw, they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he, Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded or some translations say they were amazed. Now, if you've ever been in a church before, you've most likely heard this story. If you've driven by a church, you've probably heard this story before. If you played on a church softball team, you heard curse words and this story. But I want us to know that this story is filled with new insights for us today. Now, the first thing that we need to see that's significant is that it says that the wind was against them. And we have to remember that Jesus, after this miracle of the five loaves and two fish, said he sent them across the sea. But He sent them into a storm, a storm that he was aware was coming, and the winds were against them. It's significant because we assume so often in life that if God sends us to do something, that the wind will be with us. That if God sends me to do something, that the wind will be with me. But this is the premise of an immature faith. This kind of thinking that says, if I turn my life over to God, he's going to take the stresses and the troubles of my life away. If I turn my life over to God, he's going to keep me healthy He's going to make me wealthy, and he's going to make my life free of all pain and struggle. But what we often discover over time is that because the wind is against us doesn't mean that God is not for us. Often confirmation that God has actually spoken to us is the fact that the wind of life and the storms of life are against us. And what Mark teaches through this story is that resistance, when the winds of life are blowing hard against us like they are right now, resistance is often often fertile soil for revelation. That resistance is often fertile soil for transformation. The wind was against the disciples here, not because they disobeyed, but actually because they obeyed his command to go to the other side. But we read this and like they were left wrestling with some simple observations and questions like, well, how can God be with me if the wind is against me? How can a loving God exist and allow something like the coronavirus to be a thing? How can he allow these loss of jobs, financial insecurity, death, and this pandemic fear and anxiety that's crippling our world? Often God reveals that he is with us in the most significant ways when the winds of life And the storms of life are against us. Here's why. Because if the wind was working for it with you, if everything in life was going according to your plans and moving you in the direction that you wanted to go, you'd thank the wind or you'd thank yourself when you arrived at your destination or when you achieved everything that you had set out to achieve. If the wind wasn't against you, you wouldn't need God to come and speak peace into your situation. 
So there, there are times in life, and this might be one of them, when you realize that the wind is against you because God wants to prove that he is with you. Listen to what Mark says in verse 46. It says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them, but pass by them. But when he saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and they were terrified. This is something really interesting about Mark's gospel account of Jesus's life is that most scholars actually believe that Mark was recording Peter's recounting of his experience with Jesus, that Peter, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, actually told Mark what to write. These were his memories, his experiences of traveling with Jesus and of being with the disciples over the course of three years. Now, you know Peter. Peter's the really bold, brash disciple that said what everyone else was thinking but was too afraid to say. Uh, Peter was filter-free. If you're familiar with an Enneagram, Peter was an Enneagram 8. Uh, When he was right, he was really, really right. But when he was wrong, he was really, really wrong. So Peter, most scholars believe, was actually telling Mark, this story. Now, Mark wasn't a disciple. Mark was an evangelist who came after Jesus, but he's compiling the story of Peter here. So in Mark's telling of events that we just read, it says that Jesus walked on the water. The disciples thought that he was a ghost. He says he got in the boat and the winds died down. It's really interesting because this same story is in other gospel accounts. And I want to look at when this uh, it shows up in the gospel of Matthew, because it's interesting that Matthew included something in this story that Mark left out. And see if you can spot it at home. See if you can notice when the story changes in Matthew. So this is Matthew chapter 14 now. So this is Matthew's account of this story of the life of Jesus. It says this, Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Again, the wind was against them. So, so far, so good. It seems to line up. And in the fourth watch of the night, just before dawn, he came to them walking on the sea. Again, he's walking on the sea in this story too. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, again, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So, so far, so good, right? Listen to what happens next. It says, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. So you notice the difference there? In Matthew's story, there's this added part where they see Jesus walking on the water. Peter, bold Peter, sees Jesus and says, hey, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out and I'll come to you. And he does. He steps out of the boat and he walks on the water. Now, I don't know about you, but if this is my memoir, like Peter's telling Mark to um, write down his story with Jesus, if this is my memoir, I'm leaving this in. So how can Peter walk on water But when he's telling Mark this story, how could he leave this part out? I think this is significant. And I think the reason that Peter leaves it out is because of what happens in verse 30. Listen to what happens in verse 30 in Matthew's account. He says, but when he saw the wind, this is Peter. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So Peter heard the word of Jesus to come, but says he saw the wind. 
Uh, sometimes like Peter, I pay attention to what I see more than I pay attention to what God says. I pay attention to the circumstances of life more than I pay attention to the truth found in God's word. And anytime I, or anytime we, give more focus to what we see instead of what God says, we begin to sink spiritually. It says he saw the wind and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And I imagine this is probably why he left it out when he was telling Mark what happened. And Mark's like sitting there like, you know, Peter, shouldn't I, I, I leave this in? But Peter has discovered something in his life because it's been decades since this event occurred and when he was telling Mark and Mark recorded his gospel. Peter has discovered something. And I want to go back to Mark chapter 6 to see what Peter discovered. In Mark's account, Peter's focus wasn't on his actions. It wasn't about him stepping out of the boat. Peter's focus in this storm was on something else. In verse 51, it says this, And he, Jesus, got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. What I think Peter discovered in this moment is that it wasn't significant when he climbed out of the boat. Peter's telling Mark this story, and he's like, you know, it's not significant when I climbed out. He says, don't tell them what happened when I climbed out. Tell them what happened when he climbed in. It's not about when Peter stepped out. It's not about them struggling all night. The wind didn't stop because they were straining at the oars. It didn't die down when Peter came to Jesus. The wind died down because Jesus came into the boat, because Jesus came to them. And I think that's the hope of the gospel. And I think that's the hope for our moment right now in this coronavirus pandemic. Jesus is sitting in the boat with these panicking disciples. He's not ignoring the winds or the storm around them. He's also not giving in to the panic and the fear of the moment. But in the midst of this storm, in the the midst of this great fear of the disciples, Jesus is a non-anxious presence who brings peace and who brings calm in the middle of a great storm. Uh, 1997 was a big year. A lot of things happened. Princess Diana died in an automobile accident. Steve Jobs came back to Apple. Uh, Titanic broke every box office record that there was. There was this unknown author named J.K. Rowling who released a book about wizards into the world that freaked Christians out for over a solid decade. And then there was this guy named Edwin Freeman who wrote this book, or a book was released posthumously, called A Failure of of Nerve, A Failure of Nerve. Uh, Many leading thinkers, CEOs, and authors consider this book to be the greatest single book on leadership ever written. Uh, Friedman was a Jewish rabbi. He was also a therapist. And he, he made this discovery that institutions or organizations actually operate like families. They're just simply a system of relationships. And the entire premise of this book, Failure of Nerve, it was really simple, and it can be summed up in this one sentence from his book. It says this, the function of a leader with, within any institution, and he's talking about a healthy leader here, the function of a healthy leader within any institution is to provide that regulation through his or her non-anxious, self-defined presence. Friedman teaches that the greatest leaders calm anxieties and fears of those that they lead in life's most challenging and stressful moments. 
This story of Peter is such a great case study because you have faith, you have doubt, and you have fear that all show up in the story. They all show up within moments of one another. Does that ring true in in your story? I know it does for me. How many times have you felt faith, doubt, or fear just in the last seven days? I know for me that there are like these moments where I feel like very full of faith in God. I have great confidence in him. And then the very next moment, like I'm sinking in fear and anxiety as I look at the news and I hear these reports around the world. Faith, doubt, and fear can show up within 30 seconds in my life and I'm sure in yours as well. But what Friedman teaches is that when we fail or when we fail or we fail when we keep anxiety in circulation. He says that when we keep anxiety in circulation by spreading all the terrible things that are happening in the world, by causing more and more anxiety, by ramping it up, instead of regulating it through our non-anxious presence, we fail as leaders. And I contend that we fail as followers of Jesus. And I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about this story in Mark 6 and in Matthew this week, that this story is only a chapter in a larger story about Jesus growing his disciples into being a non-anxious presence in their world. Now, keep in mind that this is actually the second storm account found in Mark's gospel and also in Matthew's gospel. And maybe you're reading this and you're like, yeah, this sounds familiar. It seems like this has happened before. There's actually another storm that took place earlier in the disciples' walk with Jesus. It's very similar. These stories are very similar, but they're also different. These storm stories show up in Matthew chapter 8 and Mark chapter 4. And I want to look at the one in Matthew 8 as we get close to closing here. Listen to what happens. The disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. They're in the exact same place again. And once again, they find themselves, or actually for the first time, they find themselves in a storm. So this storm took place maybe years before the storm that we read about just now. Matthew 8 says this, Then he, Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. It's really interesting to note the differences in these stories. In the first story, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples, but he's asleep. In the second story, Jesus that we read at the beginning is out of the boat, and he's nowhere to be seen. In the first story, Jesus asks them this question. He asks them, why are you so afraid? afraid. In the second story, Jesus gives them a command. He says, do not be afraid. Why is this important? It's important because Jesus cannot tell his disciples not to fear right out of the gate. He has to grow them into into becoming the kind of people who have the capacity not to fear. For them and for us today, this happens over time and through experiencing God's faithfulness and the love of his people. And I think that these storm stories are a lesson for us today. It's a lesson in, in for us to understand that we are all at different places in our life and in our following of Jesus. You know, we might be first storm people where Jesus is asking us the question right now, why are you so afraid? We're growing in our faith, but we haven't had time with God. We haven't had the relationship with him to, to not be afraid and to not be uh, fearful And if you're a first storm disciple of Jesus right now, that's okay. And that's good. Just acknowledge where you are. Or maybe you're a second storm person 
where Jesus is commanding us not to be afraid because we've had the experience of the loaves and the fish. We've experienced life and we've experienced relationship with Jesus and his people. We have the opportunity to remember God's faithfulness in our past story. So we've grown into the kind of people that God can command not to be fearful because we know how God loves and how God provides. But Jesus models what it means to be a non-anxious presence in the first storm. And he calls his disciples to be a non-anxious presence in the next storm. You know, anxiety is so often rooted in the belief that we have to do something. It's also rooted in living in the uncertainty and the unknown of the future. But peace is rooted in the knowledge that God is in control, that the work has already been done. But having an attitude of peace doesn't undermine or dismiss the pain of our current moment. It provides relief in the midst of it. I love what St. Ignatius of Loyola said. This is called the Ignatian Principle of Indifference. Listen to what he said. He said, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one, for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. Like I said, this is called the Ignatian principle of indifference. And that word indifference isn't the best word for us to use in English. It's not about not caring or being indifferent. It's a poor word. But essentially what uh, um, Ignatius is saying here is that it's about being dispassionate to what happens to us. And when you have this attitude, it minimizes this disabling anxiety around us. And he says it calls us to a more loving response, not only to God, but to others. So for us, being a non-anxious presence doesn't mean that you never feel fear. Uh, Fear, neurobiologists tell us, is one of the six basic emotions of survival. God created your body to to feel fear when it's under a threat. But we cannot stay in that state of fear. We cannot stay in a state of anxiety. We have to move out of it for our emotional, emotional, mental, and physical health. Uh, Becoming a non-anxious presence means that we grow and we come to fear God or to have awe and reverence for God, not be afraid of God in the sense that he will harm or hurt us. It's becoming to fear God or coming to fear God above all and all the other fears are ordered below that. When you fear God, when you have reverence and awe for God, that is first and foremost in your life, and then order all your other fears below that. Under that weight, what you'll discover is that they'll disappear and they'll lose their power over you. And when that happens, fear, awe, and reverence becomes a signal from your body from which to navigate and negotiate life. Rather than trauma, rather... um, than trauma being a tyrant to oppress or repress you. You know, it's said that all healing, spiritual and physical, is the removal of fear. And I said at the beginning today that being a non-anxious presence is not just about the absence of fear and anxiety, but that it's about the presence of something else. It's about God's presence. It's about Jesus being in the boat with us, whether we're first or second storm people. That Jesus is there. That this moment in our world and in our culture is very scary, but that Jesus is there to transform us into people with a capacity not to fear, 
but to love because fear and love are at war with one another. Anxiety and love are at war with one another. This is what the author of 1 John 4.18 says when he says this. There is no fear, there is no anxiety in love, but what? But perfect fear drives, or perfect love drives out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. So no matter where you are today, if you're at home, if you're on your back porch, if you're in your bed, um, just close your eyes and let's get into a spirit, into a moment of prayer. And let's consider what God would have us learn this morning from the story. So bow and pray with me. So as we come into the presence of God and together um, in this community of God, even virtually or online today, as we come together day after week after month after year, we have the capacity to become people who are less and less anxious, upset, and afraid, but more and more and more, not only at peace, not, not even just joyful, but people of love. In the coming week, in every relationship that you engage, whether in forced quarantine with a family or in conversation with a neighbor or FaceTiming with a fearful family member, may we become increasingly people of love and a non-anxious presence that God uses to calm the storms in our world. God, Father, we love that you call us to hard things. We love that your word challenges us to in a sense, rise above the storms of life and to realize that we're not lost in the storm, but that God, that you are an ever-present help in this great moment of need. So God, I pray that you would cast out fear with your love. God, I pray that you would use us to cast out fear around us as we love from that place. God, we recognize that fear and love are at war with one another. God, we want to be agents of peace. We want to be agents of love. We want to be a non-anxious presence in a very anxious world. And God, we recognize that we can only do that by abiding with you, by being in sync and in tune with your spirit. So God, call us to that place right now. God, center us back on that moment after moment after moment in the coming days so that we can bring peace to a broken world. Father, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.